God, we thank you so much for uh, this chance that we have, Lord, just to gather, Lord, in a, in a safe place. And Lord, we can bring all of our burdens from this week, our burdens from the weekend, and come into a space and not only bring them before you, but bring them before one another, knowing, Lord, that you care, knowing that you're active, Lord, knowing that you're going to use the burdens that we face for our good and for your glory. Lord, even as we turn to your word, um, God, I pray that you'd help us not to be passive listeners today, but would you allow us to be active listeners who are open, who are leaning into your voice, Lord, who are reading these verses and saying, God, what do you have in store for me? So Lord, I pray that you'd guide us and that you'd work in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a sermon series walking through the book of Nehemiah. We've been seeing how God has used an ordinary man named Nehemiah to do an extraordinary work in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. These events in Nehemiah took place around 425 uh, BC, and these are some of the last things that occurred before the 400 years of silence before the birth of Jesus. And one thing that we've seen is just how similar the people of God were 2,500 years ago to even us today in the season uh, that God has our church in right now. That God raises up Nehemiah, sends him 800 miles away from uh, kind of the, the, the lifestyle of living in a palace to go start to rebuild walls and to do the brick and mortar type of work. Just how similar that is for us today as the Lord is allowing us to build the physical walls of our church. Uh, in just a month, hopefully we'll be in that building. And, and yet one thing that we've seen in Nehemiah is that there's something way more significant that's been going on. There's something way more important than just the, the brick and mortar reform but it's the reformation that's happening inside the spiritual walls of their hearts. And I think that's the same for us today. That yes, it's very exciting for a new building, having our own space to worship in. But the most important thing that God is doing in our church, and will always do in our church, is what happens inside the walls of our hearts for his glory and for our good. And so we've seen the first three chapters so far. The first uh, chapter deals with Nehemiah's calling and how he just gets a passion for this assignment that God has given him. Chapter 2, we saw that the most powerful man in the world during this time, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, not only gives Nehemiah permission to travel 800 miles, but decides to fund the whole project, uh, which was just an amazing work of the Lord. And then last week, chapter 3, we saw just the, the beautiful unity of God's people who are now participating in the beginning of the rebuild. And if we don't keep reading, I think that we could be tempted in thinking that Nehemiah accomplished this assignment without any type of resistance at all. No opposition. This was just kind of smooth sailing and so far so good for Nehemiah. And if we don't keep on reading then the temptation is for you and I to conclude that, ah, this is what the Christian life should be all about, that there shouldn't be any type of resistance or opposition or, or any type of conflict as we're trying to pursue the Lord. That sometimes we get tempted into thinking that just because we're following the Lord Jesus, that our lives should be easy, 
That if God has given us assignment or a a, a unique work to do in his name, that he's going to part the Red Seas and protect us from any type of hardship. Sometimes we think about our lives looking like this graph, that if God has called us to something, then it's going to come with very little resistance. And yet the reality is it's very far from that graph. And many of you are, are nodding your heads because you feel this and you know this personally, that when you're trying to grow as a follower of Jesus, there will be conflict. There will be opposition. And the same is true even for Nehemiah, that we've only been in the first couple of chapters. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 has some of the most profound opposition, both from the outside and also from the inside, that God's people have to endure. In fact, we're going to kind of see this this cycle over the next couple of chapters where the people of God start to advance in accomplishing God's work, God's way, but then they experience a bit of setback, a bit of opposition, and kind of back and forth it'll go over the next couple of chapters. I think it's important and it's also helpful to know that this is what the people of God experienced 2,500 years ago, and this is also normal for us who live within the Christian life today that you will have conflict, you will have opposition, you will have resistance when you're trying to grow as a follower of Jesus. If you're trying to grow in a friendship or your marriage or a relationship with your children or with a parent, you will have opposition. Trying to live faithfully in the workplace or at the schools or, or in your neighborhood, you will have opposition. And so we need to know how to overcome it and how to respond to it. And that's what I love about Nehemiah. Even though it was written 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah helps answer the question, how do we, the people of God, respond to opposition both individually and even corporately? That's what we're going to look at here this morning. Well, since we'll be talking a lot about opposition, let me first define it before we see it in Nehemiah chapter 4. The way I'm using opposition is opposition is anything or anyone that threatens your growth and perseverance in the faith. Anything or anyone that tempts you away from doing what is right and being faithful to the Lord. I'm not using opposition uh, as it relates to things that oppose maybe your own personal goals in your own life. Sometimes that conflicts with what God is trying to do in your life. But I think Nehemiah 4 and really the Bible as a whole talks about opposition as things that want to kind of threaten your growth within the Lord. And I think that there are four different kinds of opposition in Nehemiah chapter 4 that I want to first kind of point out before we get into how we should respond. So here's the the first, I I think, form of opposition in verses 1 through 3 is in the form of ridicule ridicule or mockery. Look with me at these first three verses. Word of God says, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
All right, this is the first form of opposition that Nehemiah and, and the people of God experience. And the driver of this opposition is Sanballat. We are reintroduced to him in verse 1, and he is angry and he is greatly enraged at the progress of the building. I think it's important to know that Sanballat was a man of influence. This is not like some random schoolyard bully who's picking on God's people. This is like the most popular kid in the class who's turned against God's people in this area. He was the governor of Samaria. He had marriage ties, even with the high priest. And he knows that his influence will lessen if Jerusalem is refortified and these walls are rebuilt. And so he's motivated out of greed, out of anger, and his mockery of God's people turns from kind of private sniping in chapter 2 to now having this public scorn as he voices his contempt in front of his buddies and in front of the army of Samaria. Now, the device that he uses, he's using these rhetorical questions to drive home opposition. He's targeting the weakness of the Jews, calling them feeble. He's putting into question if they're going to finish this project, if this is even wise for them to do. He's putting doubt in their minds about God and his faithfulness. Even his right-hand man, Tobiah, throws in a jab talking about how if a fox goes up the wall, it's going to absolutely crush it, which I read that at first, at first time. I actually laughed. I was like, that's pretty good, Tobiah. Um, but, but these walls here, some of these things are not even true, what they're saying. Historians found that these walls that they built were nine feet thick, right? So they're, they're trying to put doubts into the minds of God's people in order to threaten their perseverance in the assignment that God has for them. Well, we'll get to Nehemiah's response in a moment. Let me show you the second form of opposition that we see. It grows here into hostility, into hostility. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 and verse 11. It says, But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now look at verse 11. It says, And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Okay, so we see that the form of opposition here begin to grow into hostility. God's people are in trouble. This is not just ridicule and mockery. These are threats of physical violence. And the enemies of God now have them surrounded. You've got the Samaritans in the north, the Ammonites in the east, the Arabians in the south, and the men of Ashdod in the west. And they're not messing around. Like, they're not just playing games. They're not just giving them empty threats here. They want to destroy God's people. They even go as far as beginning to plot together and team up. These common enemies are wanting to obliterate God's people. And it's beginning to impact God's people and how they're thinking about their assignment, which leads us to the third opposition that we see, and that is in the form of discouragement. So it's starting to turn from outward opposition to now kind of this inward weariness in verses 10 and 12. Let me read this for us. In verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
Then you look at verse 12, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. All right, now catch what's going on here. The, the people of God are looking around at all of the rubble, at all of the work that they need to do, and they're concluding this is an impossible task. There's too much work to do. And this form of opposition, I think, is one of the most dangerous forms within the people of God. You can kind of rally together if you're unified from kind of opposition from outside. But when outside pressure uh, comes into the people of God in combination with an internal weariness, that's when I think the people of God are most vulnerable to falling away from the task that God has given them. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of God's people here. God's people are tired. They are overwhelmed. They are stressing out at the threats of physical violence that's all around them. All of their enemies are about to come in and attack. And now they're looking at the work that they are to do, and they're thinking, this is way too much for us. We're not skilled masonries. We don't know what to do with, with all of the rubble that's here. And so they're beginning to become greatly discouraged. Well, it gets a little bit worse from that. Here's the fourth form of opposition, and that is isolation. Verse 19. Nehemiah says in verse 19, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. Okay, so again, try to picture what they're going through. Nehemiah and God's people are trying to defend themselves against their enemies, but they're also trying to still do the work that's before them. But the wall is so large, and there's really not enough of them. And so as a result, there are large gaps in between them. And so they're experiencing the opposition in the form of isolation, where they're lacking the safety of community and are starting to experience the challenges of isolation. All right, they, they are really in a prime position of everything falling apart, really before they truly get started. Now, as, as we think about opposition and what Nehemiah and God's people went through 2,500 years ago, it's easy for us to create distance. It's easy for us to think, ah, that's what they went through but we are, you know, new covenant people. We're on this side of the cross living in 2020. We really don't go through that kind of opposition like they did. And, and so what I want to do for the next couple of moments, I want to kind of bring this into our world just for a moment. And I want to talk through what does opposition look like both for the church of Jesus Christ and also for you personally as an individual follower of Jesus. All right, let's first, let's talk about the opposition that the church faces today. Obviously, the church throughout the world experiences opposition in several different ways. Some in the form of extreme persecution like martyrdom, others in, in other kinds of, of physical abuse or emotional abuse, social abuse, different hostility comes against the church. But for us who are living in, you know, Hamilton County, in, in 2020, the, the majority of the opposition that we face today is not so much personal. 
It's not so much there are these individuals who are saying, ah, let's go up against College Park fishers and take them down, right? We, we don't see that a whole lot. The majority of the opposition that we face today, and really every church that's trying to be faithful, is more of an impersonal opposition. That there are things within the culture and the world around us, again, that serve as, as a way to threaten our growth and our perseverance in the faith. Let me list maybe a couple really popular ones. The first one uh, has to do with kind of a, a hypersexuality is, is what I'll call it. That from the culture around us, they are elevating sexuality to the degree where you find your identity in your sexuality, really to the point of redefining your sexuality if you need to do so. That's something that, that we face that's coming up against the church in an ideology. Another form of opposition is humanism, right? The, the, the belief that I find the answers from within, that I, I follow my own heart, that, that everything is inside and I need to be true to myself, right? It's opposition that we feel. Or even uh, kind of this anti-authoritarianism, which basically is, is, is I have all of the authority. There's no authority beyond me. The, the word of God doesn't have authority. The church doesn't have authority. God doesn't have authority. I am my final authority. We see it in uh, consumerism or narcissism or, or prejudice, all kinds of different ideologies that we face in the world today that can tempt us from pulling away from being faithful to the Lord. And, and even this, this intolerance of tolerance is what I'll kind of describe it, where the culture around us, they want to be to tolerant of nearly every view, unless, of course, you have a view of intolerance, and then, of course, they're going to be intolerance, they're going to be intolerant to your intolerant under the banner of tolerance, right? And you probably have experienced this, where, where you want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, and there's kind of this exclu exclusivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to what the word of God says. And so you're experiencing from the world this intolerance towards your own beliefs under the banner of tolerance. And we feel this on a daily basis. These are just a few things that we come up against as the church in today's world. And I point that out today, and there are many more, because you and I need to be aware of the culture around us and the impact that it can have on us being faithful to what God has called us. You need to be aware that the culture around us is not neutral, that there are ideologies and messages uh, of nearly everything that we experience in the culture around us, and so much of it so that we need to be discerning about what those messages are about what those ideologies are and its impact on us as the people of God and what the Word of God actually says. And sometimes the fish doesn't know it's wet. Sometimes we're just kind of swimming in the culture and we don't know what the messages are that, that we're truly experiencing. And yet they're, they're providing opposition for us to living out God's calling for us as the church. Okay, those are just a few things that we're up against. Now, secondly, let's look personally, individually. What does opposition look like for you today? Now, the Bible talks about kind of common 
uh, opposition that all believers face today. We have the, the same enemy, Satan himself. We have our own flesh. We have temptations from the world. We have what I'll call uh, self-imposed opposition due to our own laziness, our own foolishness, our own sin. But what does this look like for you today? Maybe this looks like a strained relationship. Maybe something within your own marriage, a, a friendship, maybe a child or a parent, a coworker that's providing opposition to you being faithful to the Lord. Maybe it's a sickness in your own body or in someone that you love that, that's just not going away. Maybe it's in the form of loneliness or busyness or, or other temptations that you're feeling that you're going up against. Maybe it's a financial strain. I don't know, whatever it is, whatever's threatening your growth and your perseverance in the Lord, the question that we have to ask ourselves is how are we, the people of God, to respond to opposition that's around us in a way that leads to growth, not just getting through it, right? There's a big difference between the two. The world can just get through opposition, but the way that the people of God are to respond to opposition is that we are to view opposition as one of the primary tools in the hand of God that he uses to mature us and to grow us. And so what does that look like in, in our own lives as it relates to opposition that we face almost on a daily basis? Well, what does Nehemiah do here? What, what do the people of God in Nehemiah 4, how do they respond to it. Here's the first thing that I see that can help us respond to opposition well is that they remember the Lord. They remember the Lord. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Remember, this is right after they experienced the first form of opposition, ridicule and mockery. Nehemiah's first response is to turn to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 4. It says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You look at even verse 9, they, uh, they, they respond to God in prayer as well. And I love these verses because, look, this is how we are to respond to opposition every time. That we turn to the Lord and we remember him in prayer. That their first response was not anger. It, it was not uh, you know, a, a pity party. It was not slander. It was not, hey, we need to start boycotting some things. But their first response is to turn to God in prayer. Now, the content of their prayer is really interesting to me. Like when you look at verses 4 and 5, you think, Ooh, like that doesn't feel very loving to pray this, you know, uh, you know, against someone else. It feels like this is violating Jesus' command in Matthew 5.44 to love your enemies and to pray for them, right? So what's going on here, and, and how do we make sense of it as New Covenant believers? Well, as you know, throughout the Bible, there are different categories for prayers. You've got prayers of thanksgiving. You've got prayers of confession, prayers of supplication, Nehemiah here is using an imprecatory prayer, which means it is a prayer where you are invoking the justice of God against the enemies of God, 
where you have God's enemies who are directly opposing God's work and God's people that's negatively impacting the magnification of God's glory and God's reputation. And you see this here uh, primarily in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, Psalm 109 are good examples of those. But you have God's enemies uh, that are against the glory of God, and so God's people are calling down really ultimate destruction upon them. And for the people of God, what we have to remember is that in the Old Testament, what they were holding on to was the promised Messiah was going to come through their offspring. Right? That promise all the way from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, through the seed of Eve, through their offspring, there will be a Messiah that will crush the head of the serpent. That this offspring will come through the tribe of Judah, through the son of David. And so they need to protect that. They need to ensure that this was going to happen. So Nehemiah is praying for, for retribution towards their evil acts and for justice. Now for us today, like we need to be very careful in praying in precatory prayers this side of the cross. That for us, as, as Jesus entered the scene and the New Testament started teaching more on what it looks like to love the enemies of God, what it looks like to pray for the enemies of God, we can pray for justice, but we also should not be praying for the ultimate destruction of God's enemies. We're praying for their repentance. We're praying for their hearts to be turned. We're praying that their, their eyes would be opened and that they would experience the same grace that you and I have experienced. Now, I think we can pray these types of imprecatory prayers towards our chief enemy, Satan himself. We can pray these prayers towards the sin that's in our lives, that wants to cause destruction and, and it causes us to fall away from the Lord. But I think we need to be careful as we think about who the people of God, the church is, and, and what that looks like as we think about who the enemies of God's people are. So Nehemiah is turning to the Lord. He's praying. But look, look at verse 14 with me. Jump down a little bit. This, again, is in light of opposition that they're experiencing. He says this. He says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Look, this is really helpful for those of us who are going through opposition, trying to understand how am I to respond to it. Notice is that they stop and they remember the Lord. This is so important in order for us to grow because what we must do is we must replace whatever emotion we are feeling, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, whether it's confusion, whether it's anxiety, whatever it is, we must replace that emotion with something that is greater, something that is stronger, which is God Almighty and the power of his word. If you don't replace that with God, then that emotion that's caused from the opposition that you are experiencing, that emotion will put you into a prison cell where you will be unable to grow through the opposition. If you think about it here, for them, they are trying to dwell on who God is in order to lift them out of the pit of hopelessness and despair. 
I love what Nehemiah does. Verse 14, as they're surrounded by the enemies of God, he says, look, do not be afraid. He's saying, look, I know fear is starting to settle into your heart. I know that this, this, this emotion can create a bondage for you. But he says, don't allow fear to control you. Replace your fear by remembering who God actually is. He says, remember the Lord who is great, who is awesome, and who is fighting for you. See, Nehemiah is saying, where else can we turn? You want to go down the path of following your emotions, that's going to put you in a prison cell where you're going to be unable to grow. Fix your eyes on God Almighty, who has a perfect track record of being faithful to you and being true to his promises. And look, what I appreciate about this about Nehemiah is like he's not saying, yeah, just fix your eyes on, on God and your opposition is going to disappear. He's not saying that. He's not saying focus on God and this whole thing is magically going to go away. No, in fact, after verse 14, it gets worse for them. It actually gets so worse that they have to, they have to start carrying swords and spears wherever they go. All right, so this isn't a way to just kind of ignore the opposition. This is a way to help process the opposition that comes into our lives, that we remember God because as we remember God, as we rehearse his promises, it makes sense why God is allowing this in our lives. See, even though God wanted this wall to be rebuilt, this was his desire for it to be rebuilt, God still allowed opposition. And, and you come back to remembering who God is. And, and you remind yourselves that God is sovereign even over the opposition that's in my life. That there's, there's purpose behind this. That God's going to work this out for my good and for his glory when I lean in and I remember all that he is. You know, we just sang a new song this morning. The Waymaker, is that what it's called? Yeah, Waymaker. And, and you probably were singing it. It's a good song to just, you know, to learn and, and to repeat. And, and I know some of us are like, oh, these worship songs, they just repeat the same thing over and over again. Do you know why we do that? We do that because what we do in our singing is we take the truth that we know up here, and as we sing it over and over and over again, and as the people of God are singing it over and over and over again, it moves that truth from being up here, and it starts to, to take root inside your heart and inside your soul, right? Like as we're repeating those lyrics, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are over and over and over again, that he is a promise-keeping God, that he shines light in the darkness. If you're going through a season of opposition, you need to be reminded of that, of exactly who God is, because your circumstances are trying to convince you otherwise. Your circumstances and your opposition are trying to tell you who God is, that he's forgotten about you, that he's not at work, that he's not going to use this for your good. And so we sing these songs repeating good, rich theology so that it takes root deep within our bones as we remember all that God is. And we see Nehemiah doing it as he prays. So remember the Lord. That's the first thing. Secondly here, remember the work that God has assigned to you. I love this. Look at verse 6 and 15 real quickly. After they pray, 
verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Jump down to verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. I love this because they prayed and they got back to work. They prayed and they remembered their assignment from God and they stayed engaged in it. Like you and I are so vulnerable to walking away from being faithful to the Lord, especially in the midst of opposition. And yet the reality is, is that the way that we respond to opposition, it truly reveals the the maturity of our faith. The the ways that we interact with, with God in the midst of opposition reveals exactly what you believe about him. And sometimes that's good news and sometimes that's bad news. So I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to think about the way in which you typically respond to the opposition that's in your life. The way that you historically have responded to opposition in your life. What does that response reveal about what you believe about God? What does your response reveal about your expectations of God in the Christian life? Like if your response to opposition leads you to getting off the wall, so to speak, and and no longer participating in the work that God has for you, what does that say about the maturity of your faith? See, this this struck me so hard because they're surrounded by all of these enemies. The work before them is daunting. And there's really, for them, they're thinking, how are we going to get through this? And they say, we're going to pray And we're going to stay faithful to what God has before us, and we're going to get to work. And I think they had that because of their expectations. They're looking out before them, and they're saying, this isn't going to be easy. This is not going to be a cakewalk. And I think for us, living in 2020, one of the reasons why we get distracted with being faithful to God in the midst of opposition is because we don't have the correct expectations as it relates to opposition. That sometimes we think if we're following the Lord, this is going to be pretty easy. But the Word of God says otherwise. If you think about 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I just wonder if some of us who experience opposition, experience trials, experience temptations, think, what is going on? Why is this happening? This is so strange. Why is the world responding to me in that way because I'm a follower of Jesus? Or why is temptations coming on so strong right now? What is going on? Where is God? And I think the Word of God is, is trying to flip that and say, you know what? It's actually abnormal when you're not going through opposition and temptations and trials. That our expectations sometimes shapes our response to opposition. And what the Word of God is saying to us is to expect it. 2 Timothy 3.12, all all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Pretty clear. Like for us to have the right expectations and not to be surprised by it will help us respond faithfully. And I think that's what helped the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 4. I love the way 
that, that they're described kind of physically being prepared, being ready for battle at every moment. Look at verse 9. It says, They prayed, and then they set a guard as protection day and night. Verses 16 through 18, they've got workers who are doing the work God has called them to, and they're carrying swords, they're carrying spears and shields. You get to verses 21 through 23, and, and, and they're not even really taking showers or changing their clothes or sleeping because they have such a sense of urgency here. And you have to wonder, why are they living this way? Why are, are they having such a sense of urgency as, as they try to do God's work God's way? It's because they were fully convinced that there were threats all around them because they were in a real battle. And the question that I have for us this morning is, are you convinced of the same thing as a follower of Jesus? Are you utterly convinced that you may not be in a physical battle, but are you convinced that you are in the middle of a spiritual battle against spiritual enemies in the spiritual realm, according to Ephesians 6, who want to take you out of doing God's work God's way, that you have real threats all around you who despise you as a follower of Jesus, who have marked you, who have put a bullseye on your back, especially if you're living faithfully in the workplace, especially if you're trying to have a gospel-centered marriage and trying to raise little image bearers who, who are your children the enemy is coming for you. And sometimes it's so easy to kind of allow the enemy to, to, to kind of cause us to be sleepwalking through the Christian life as if really the, there's nothing going on in the spiritual realm. And yet Ephesians 6 says completely otherwise. They do not want the gospel or the purposes of God to be advanced in your life. And the challenge is, is that, look, they've been They've been studying humanity for centuries. And you need to be reminded this morning that they study you. They know exactly your weaknesses. They know exactly your temptations. They know exactly the time of day that you are most vulnerable to temptation. They know all of your trigger spots. They know exactly what kind of snares to put in your life to trip you up and to get you off the wall in being faithful to the Lord. And my question for you today is, are you aware of this battle? And are you engaged? And are you on guard, putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6? Do you know all of the different pieces of armor in Ephesians 6? And are you suiting up every day, getting ready to battle against an enemy? Like, I'm not saying, like, finding, you know, the devil behind every bush, but Scripture is clear that we have a real enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion. He's not some tamed kitty cat that wants to kind of trip you up or not give you the affection that you need like all cats tend to do, but they want to destroy you, and you need to be aware of the things that are in your life in the form of opposition, that it's not by accident and it's not by coincidence, so stay focused on the work that God has before you, knowing that you have a real enemy. Lastly here, the, the third thing, we're out of time, but I'll, I'll share it here. Remember the example of Jesus. 
remember the example of Jesus, you're thinking, where is Jesus in, in Nehemiah 4? Like, what, like what, what verse? Is it verse you know, 24 or what, what's going on here? Look at verse 20 for a moment. Nehemiah, who rallies the people of God together, the sound of trumpet blaring, and, and he gets them together, and he says, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. And I love that because us on, the, on, the, on this side of the cross in the new covenant, what that is saying is that our God has already fought for us on the cross of Calvary against the largest and the biggest enemy of our lives, Satan himself, and he has put an end to all of our sin. That for us, thinking about this spiritual battle that we're in, Jesus Christ has already won. That on the cross of Calvary, he put an end to all of our sin. He has disarmed the spiritual powers in the spiritual realm, according to Colossians 1. And so through Jesus Christ and his work in our lives, we can walk in victory. That for Jesus, he is our warrior. He is our king. And if you have your faith that's been put upon Jesus, all of that victory is yours today. See, the reality is, is that when you look at the jeering remarks in verses 2 and 3, I don't know about you, but I've heard those before. Like verses 2 and 3, I've heard those in my own life. Like through the accuser of the brethren, I've, I've heard those questions, Chris, you're weak and feeble. I, I've heard the accusations, you're not going to finish the work that God has, has put before you. I, I've heard all of these accusations from our enemy, and, and the way that we can respond to those accusations is exactly the way that Nehemiah responded. We can say, our God will fight for us. That, yeah, you're right, I am weak. You're right, this work before me is, is weighty. But my God is at work in powerful ways because of what he accomplished on the cross and how he promises to use all things for my good and for his glory, that he's given me everything I need to live a godly life. And I've got all of these promises, over 3,000 promises in the word of God that I can rely on and that I can call upon in order to live a faithful life. That's how we engage in the battle because God is fighting for us, that he's sovereign and that he's in control. And look, this morning as, as we close, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me is, is the dangers of isolation in this chapter thinking about how spread out they were and, and, and the fears that they faced. Look, God has given us the church, the people of God, in order to go through opposition together with, right? To, to lean on each other and to help carry each other's burdens. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to close in a time where we are praying over one another as it relates to many of us who are going through seasons of opposition right now. And, and in just a moment, I'm going to ask for those of you who are going through a season of opposition, just to stand where you are, and we just want to pray over you in just a moment. If you feel like that you're in a season of opposition where you have real threats in your life, maybe at the workplace, maybe in your own household, maybe, maybe in your own soul, you feel like you're being tempted, you feel like you're in a trial, and you're saying, Pastor, I need prayer today. And if that is you today, would you just stand right where you are? And just to have the boldness, thank you for standing back there. Just wherever you are, just stand where you are. 
And we want to pray over you and to help carry this burden by corporately just saying, we want to intercede on your behalf and to remind you that your God is fighting for you. Look, this may even relate to some of us who who would say, you know what? I've been going through a season where I have taken myself off the wall. Like I've gone through circumstances or people have have done things in my life and, and I'm no longer being faithful. Can I just challenge you today to get back into the work that God's given you? Can I challenge you today to be reminded God is faithful, that his grace is endless, that he loves you and that he wants to use you for his purposes and for the advancement of his kingdom. Get back to work, get back on the wall because we need you. So if you want prayer, just stand where you are before we close in prayer. All right, if you are near somebody who is standing, would you just stand where they are and just appropriately put a hand on their shoulder as I just pray a prayer, just interceding for them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer who is fighting for us. God, as we close this morning, Lord, we are reminded that the Christian life is not easy. Lord, you don't promise that. Lord, you don't guarantee that, that things will be easy. Lord, we have a real enemy. We have real opposition every single day who hates seeing the gospel lived out. So God, we, we need to be reminded that you are at work even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. God, I'm reminded of the promise in Isaiah 41 where you say, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I promise to strengthen you, to help you, to uphold you by the power of my right hand. And God, I pray that beautiful, powerful promise over the people who are standing this morning. Lord, that you would help them not to be afraid, that you you would remind them that you are with them, that you are working all things out for their good. God, I, I pray that you would sustain them by your grace, that you would strengthen them by the power of your presence. And Lord, that you would help them to be faithful. Help them, Lord, to resist temptation, to lean into what you have for them, for the beauty of Jesus and the advancement of his name.